prestige heads alike. All heads are welcome here at American Prestige. This is our first news-only episode. Uh, I am not Danny Bessner. This is producer Jake. Danny Bessner is at an undisclosed American Prestige black site abroad, uh, but I will be... He's in hiding. He knows what he did. Yeah. Yeah. No... Uh, I can't get into it, but it's it's not good, folks. I'm here, of course, joined by my comrade, Derek Davison, and we are going to get right into it. So, Derek, oh, Derek, how are you today? Uh, I'm okay. Uh, I, I, you know, he stopped asking me that, which is hurtful. It's one of the many reasons that he's on the run. I know. Uh, I, he doesn't check in with his collaborators here. International warrants, I think, uh, for his arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I'm doing okay. I'm... Uh, uh, I'm going to take a little vacation of my own here in a couple of days, so I'm looking forward to that. Yes, that is Derek's uh, euphemistic way of saying he will be relocated to an American yes. Prestige Black site. Uh, yes, and I'm looking forward to it. Yes, it. it we uh, only have the best, uh, the best Cisco products uh, <laughs> for you to eat. We have. Um, <laughs> A, a nominal window in a cell. The which survivor is... gear, the tub of macaroni and cheese, the eight pound tub of macaroni and cheese or whatever. That that looks pretty pretty enticing. Just yeah. put some pour some boiling water in that bad boy and yeah, well, well, once we get the big, once we get the big bucks, we can move on to um, where they those on demand meal service deliveries that uh, apparently make oh, your that, liver yeah, you your go. liver fail and send you to the ER. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, you're paying for the convenience of. The meal delivery, you gotta, you gotta suffer in some other way. It's yin and yang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but we prefer all of our bodily organs to be functioning here at, at AP. So don't worry, Derek. You'll be taking care. I could go either of. way on this. But let's get into it. There is so much going on in the world, as you all know. Let's get started with an update on Ukraine. Derek, take it away. Sure. There's not much to report. In Ukraine, um, the fighting continues to focus on the last couple of cities in uh, Luhansk Oblast or in the Donbass, which is in the Donbass region. Russian forces and the separatists that are fighting with them uh, appear to have, um, I would say, maybe changed stra- tactics a little bit. They've they've started uh, working, I think, to surround. Uh, the two la- remaining cities, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, which lie on opposite sides of the Donetsk River. Um, they've been moving, they've been capturing a lot of like suburbs, villages, you know, little residential areas uh, around Severodonetsk. They're now, it now looks like they've moved across the river, maybe uh, trying to do the same thing with Lysychansk, Lysychansk. It's unclear how much of Severodonetsk remains technically in Ukrainian hands. I've seen everything, anything from about 10 to 15% to just the Azot chemical plant, which we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now, where there's uh, hundreds of civilians and untold number of combatants sort of hold up in a mirror of uh, where things stood toward the end of the Mariupol siege. Uh, if the Russians surround these two cities and then, uh, you know, kind of pick them, pick them off, 
they will have control uh, um, at the end of this process of all of Luhansk Oblast, which takes them, you know, um, I guess in one sense, half halfway to controlling the entire Donbass, although Donetsk province is uh, a bit bigger, so it's probably not quite 50% of the way. Uh, they do control much of Donetsk province now, so uh, they're, they're certainly in a, in a territorial sense, I should be clear. They, they control more than half of the, the Donbass now, but in an official sense, uh, they still have one province to go. Uh, they will presumably continue pressing the remaining cities in, in Donetsk uh, oblast that are not in their control, but that's looking ahead. Right now, the fighting is very serious uh, in these two cities, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, a lot of artillery, a lot of kind of grinding it out. Uh, not good for anybody who's still living there, unfortunately. And if they're surrounded, uh, then, you know, avenues of evacuation, which are already pretty much cut off, will be entirely cut off, uh, which is, uh, you know, obviously not good. Ukraine says hundreds of civilians, including dozens of children, are currently trapped in the Azot chemical plant, which has been almost completely destroyed. The regional governor of Luhansk says only a complete ceasefire would allow them to be evacuated. The the Russians have been offering, uh, or they say they've been offering, humanitarian corridors to get civilians out of Severodonetsk in particular. Uh, but those corridors lead to Russian-controlled territory, so it's unclear how many people are actually interested in, in making use of them. Uh, and it's unclear how much, um, you know, whether even they're actually open, there's, there's obviously a lot of fighting going on, uh, that could, uh, interrupt any, uh, attempt at, at an evacuation. Uh, outside of Ukraine, there's a bit more to talk about. The European Union, leaders of the European Union member states are holding a summit, uh, today and tomorrow, uh, where they may outline plans for a, what would be, I think the seventh major sanctions package uh, against Russia. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if something comes, if, if that actually emerges and what it contains. Uh, there's a real divide, I think, at this point within the EU over uh, how to proceed on sanctions. You have some more hawkish members who want to impose. They want to go further. They've already done the oil embargo, which is a phased-in thing. It won't be fully active until at least the end of this year. Uh, but, but, you know, you have the sort of hawks, I guess, who want to go even further than that. And really the only way to go further than that is to start talking about natural gas, uh, which then triggers a response from the doves, uh, including Germany, uh, who would prefer to slow things down and, and m kind of work on implementing the sanctions that have already been imposed. Um, there's some talk of, uh, making gold, uh, somehow the centerpiece uh, of this next round of sanctions, which would be sort of a compromise. It's not really as big a deal as natural gas, um, but, uh, you know, it could still be uh, an additional burden on the Russian economy. Uh, now, speaking of gas, um, I think we talked about this last week, but uh, if we didn't, uh, Gazprom, Russia's natural gas firm, has been cutting gas flows to Europe uh, over the past week or two, uh, especially last week, very significantly, uh, cutting some countries off entirely. In other cases, you know, Germany, I think, uh, you know, by half or more. Um, so natural gas may be something that that's not on the table. I mean, even if even if they don't do an embargo, uh, it looks like Russia is is politicizing this in a sense uh, or, or using gas to retaliate for some of the sanctions that have already been imposed, uh, which will cause all of these countries that are suffering uh, cuts 
significant headaches as winter approaches. Germany uh, has already, including its green uh, economy minister uh, from the Green Party, literally from the Green Party, uh, announcing that they're going to start burning more coal, which is not terribly green, uh, to try and make up the difference uh, and supply, make sure they have a, a steady supply of heat uh, and, and energy as we go through the summer months and winter approaches. So that's where things stand in terms of sanctions. There is another controversy that emerged uh, early this week, I think on Monday, the Russians issued a threat uh, over uh, a policy that the Lithuanian government has adopted, whereby Lithuania is not allowing Russian goods to enter Lithuania by rail, even goods that are not bound for Lithuania. This is a big problem for Russia because uh, Lithuanian rail lines are typically used to send uh, fairly basic goods to Kaliningrad, which is uh, on the Baltic Sea. Uh, it's a, a Russian exclave, which means it's entirely, you know, geographically separate, uh, at least by land from the rest of, of Russia. Um, and, and it's a it's a big red line for the Russians. I mean, th- this is obviously, a, you know, any any uh, any country that has a little exclave like this, it's separated territorially. Uh, it's a security issue. It's a major security issue in the Russians view. Uh, Kaliningrad in particular, because of its fairly strategic location uh, as a as a big, um, you know, as, as a red line, let's say. And so this is uh, raising a lot of concerns for Moscow. As I said, they issued a threat to sort of take action. They didn't specify what action that might be. Uh, Lithuania, for their part, says uh, the Lithuanian government says that it's uh, hands are tied. It's required by European Union sanctions uh, to bar these goods from entering the country. I suspect this may be uh, something that people talk about to try and find a workaround uh, so they don't uh, provoke Russia here and, and potentially create a second flashpoint uh, in the in Eastern Europe, because that would not be ideal for anybody right now. Uh, and this is one place where I think the Russians would uh, be willing to take a stand because it's it's almost uh blockading their ability to to send uh, again basic things like steel you know uh materials uh into kaliningrad which is um you know not not good from their perspective was that move by lithuania coordinated in any way with the eu or was that did they kind of go rogue on this one because that sounds uh, like a pretty... i mean the eu has backed them up and said you know yeah we have these sanctions you can't um uh, uh, we can't allow, you know, EU members can't allow Russian goods to to cross their borders, at least the ones that are covered by uh, EU sanctions. Uh, I don't, I don't know if it was coordinated ahead of time. Um, I, I, that that I can't say. Mm. Um, but you know, they they have a justification here. It's just I don't, uh, uh, I don't think it's worth. Like I don't think blocking these goods from getting to Kaliningrad is worth the the trouble it's going to cause. Absolutely. Well, glad to hear that we're taking the innovative approach of sanctions and more sanctions to try and end this conflict. 60% of the time, it works every time. Sanctions are the sex panther of uh, <laughs> internet. Sex panther is m- much more effective. How dare you say that sex panther <laughs> fair. is yeah, fair far enough. more effective than sanction. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I actually more meant in that it just like, it, like sanctions, they just come back onto you and stink even more and just... Yeah, well, there is that, you're Right. Okay, moving on from Ukraine, we have a couple of big elections that went down this week. First in France. Derek, what's going on there? We had the second round of the French parliamentary election. We talked last week about the the outcome of the first round. 
Uh, the second round was on Sunday. Uh, and somewhat unsurprisingly, although I think if you'd, you'd said this at the beginning of this whole process, it, it would have been a surprising outcome. But given how the first round went, it was not terribly surprising. Uh, Emmanuel Macron's centrist, I guess, I hesitate to say centrist because they're really conservative, but uh, they call themselves centrist anyway. His coalition lost its majority in the French National Assembly. Uh, they only took 245 seats, uh, which leaves them as the largest party or the largest coalition in the assembly, but is uh, down, I think, 102 seats uh, from where they stood in the, where they stand, I guess, in the current uh, assembly. When the new one takes over, they will have 245 seats, which is uh, 44 shy of uh, what they would need, the 289 they would need uh, for a bare majority. So a major blow to Macron in terms of uh, his ability to push through legislation, uh, anything that he had planned for a second term, like, I don't know, making 80-year-olds go back to uh, shoveling uh gravel or something i don't know i, I don't know how uh, how debased he's gotten at this point but uh you know any plans he had for th something like that are going to be he's going to need to negotiate uh with at least one if not more than one of the the opposition kind of minority parties uh, to try and get that done. Certain reforms that he's planning, such as, for example, pushing up the retirement age from 62 to 64, 65, will be very difficult to get through Parliament. He will have to compose with other forces on the left and on the right. The leftist coalition that was put together by Jean-Luc Mélenchon uh, to contest this election uh, emerged a a as a unit, as, as the largest opposition block. Uh, I think they have somewhere in the 130s uh, in terms of the number of seats they have in the next assembly. But I think the parties, to, to my knowledge, the parties that, that comprise that coalition have decided not to stay in coalition when they enter uh, the next parliament. This seems somewhat short-sighted to me, but um, you know, I'm not a political genius, so I don't, uh, I don't know. Seems more likely they just decided they didn't want to try to get along with one another. The big surprise uh, outcome from Sunday was not Macron losing his majority, but a surge by the far-right National Rally Party, uh, which has eight seats currently in the Assembly and will go up to somewhere uh, 89, but in the 89 to 90 range. Um, I think, you know, you can look at this alongside the success of the leftist coalition as a sign that um, people really are fed up with the establishment and Macron and his people are the establishment at this point. It you know remains to be seen. Obviously, this is not ideal to have a far right party do this well uh, in Parliament, uh, but we'll have to see what kind of impact uh, National Rally can have legislatively. Uh, Macron has been hosting the leaders of various parties, kind of bringing them in for an audience with the with the king, I guess, to discuss forming a functional majority in the next parliament. Uh, so far, I think they've all told him basically to get bent, uh, but he seems convinced that he can kind of talk them into working with him uh, when he needs it. So he, he, he's putting forward a, a somewhat stoic face, but this is, this is a big blow for him and, and certainly an indication that people are dissatisfied with his first term. Uh, we're dissatisfied with the, you know, sort of austere, neoliberalism of it all and uh, you know we're looking for something different hey everyone it's jake just a couple of quick plugs here 
first, our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Even if you're not a paid subscriber, sign up for our free list. We've got free videos, discussion threads, and lots of other cool content coming out for everybody. So AmericanPrestigePod.com. I also want to plug the podcast Left Reckoning. It's hosted by Matt Leck and David Griscom. Matt and David are Michael Brooks Show alumni. That's how I know them. And Matt, of course, was on Majority Report. Left Reckoning is cool. It's got its own flavor. They work to cover and build a strong, popular working class rooted no BS socialist left. And with a special focus on the international struggle and Texas, the South, and the West, Dave and Matt cover working class movements today and revisit often forgotten left-wing history in the U.S., which we here at American Prestige can totally appreciate. The show premieres each Wednesday at 7 o'clock Central Time on YouTube and as a podcast the next day, along with an interactive Q&A stream with David each Tuesday afternoon. So please check them out. Okay, well, let's move to Colombia and what's going on there. We have, as the uh, Western newspapers like to say, a former guerrilla, dun dun dun, (laughs) in um, (laughs) taking the presidency. But what's really going on there, Derek? Uh, So, Gustavo Petro, the former M19 uh, guerrilla, uh, was elected president uh, in a runoff on Sunday. Um, He is the first leftist president in Colombia's history. This is a, a major uh, development. I don't want to diminish that that in any way. Uh, his running mate, uh, Francia Marquez, uh, Marquez, I don't, I'm butchering these pronunciations because Spanish is not my thing. Uh, apologies, but she is the first black vice president in Colombian history, another great milestone. Um, Petro, uh, you know, immediately got the, the guerrilla band back together and they've taken over cocaine production and will be shipping massive quantities to the United States. No, I'm, I'm kidding, Woo! of course. Uh, Petro uh, is a former M-19 guerrilla. He, he has a history in that uh, regard. He has, on the campaign trail at least, been saying a lot of things that seem designed to appease centrists. He's been critical of, for example, uh, Venezuela, which is kind of, you know, expected of Latin American leaders to denounce, the, you know, to, to deplore and denounce the Venezuelan government on some level. Whether he means that, whether this reflects a, a you know a sort of uh, more centrist sensibility as he's uh, aged out of the guerrilla his guerrilla days, uh, is unclear. He may just be saying this to appease sort of the the conservative Colombian establishment, the Colombian security uh, state. Certainly, you know, is is a group that he's going to have to try to work with, uh, or else uh, bad things could happen on so many levels. Well, you know, it, it's not clear. It's not clear whether you know he's rhetorically uh, just kind of throwing them bones or not. It, again, this is this is a, a major milestone, uh, even in the you know at the height of the pink tide. Uh, Colombia, Colombia was the bulwark for conservatism, you know, the center right to right wing type of government that the United States likes to see in Latin America. And Colombia was, uh, the bulwark for that and for the U S, uh, in the region. And, and now it's elected a leftist, which is, um, you know, I can't, you, you can't underestimate the impact of that. Uh, moving forward, uh, I'm less sort of optimistic about the possibility of Petro really being able to 
uh, implement big chunks of his agenda, which has to do have to do with uh, fighting inequality, um, anti-corruption, dealing with uh, crime and violence in in ways that are uh, you know you would not see certainly from a uh, from a right wing government. You know, there's talk of him negotiating with the National Liberation Army, a longstanding rebel group in Colombia, to try and find some kind of a peace deal. That would be, you know, a remarkable development if it comes to fruition. Uh, but on a lot of legislative things, he's going to he's going to struggle because um, the Congress that was elected uh, in uh, last month's general election, which is the same time that uh, Colombia held the first round of the presidential election, uh, that. Uh, congressional election produced a fairly fragmented Congress that I would say leans more right than left. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's going to have to make some deals with some, some parties and some people who are not necessarily uh, ideologically aligned with him, nor are they probably thrilled that he got elected. Um, so we'll have to see how, how effective he is at, at doing that. But uh uh, really just a, a remarkable political development, uh, somewhat expected, although Hernandez, uh, Rodolfo Hernandez, the right wing TikTok f- star uh, who was in the runoff against Petro, had been polling, you know, relatively close. And this was a close outcome. It was only a couple of percentage points uh, that separated them. Despite that, even though this is uh, this was sort of the outcome was up in the air and it, it was a, a, a close fought thing, I think uh, you have to say it was a. A uh, huge political shift, uh, not just for Colombia, but potentially regionally, as we see uh, leftists being elected elsewhere in Latin America. And again, Colombia is sort of the the last bastion. So it's big, uh, big doings are transpiring. It'll be really interesting to see how that develops. Okay, so moving on from Colombia, we are uh, looking at Ecuador. Derek, what's going on there? Uh, yeah, so there's been for uh, some time now a number of demonstrations, indigenous protests in Ecuador. The protesters are demanding a bunch of things. They're demanding a, a number of concessions uh, from the government. They want lower fuel prices. Uh, the Ecuadorian government of Guillermo Lasso has, uh, who's one of the, you know, still unabashed kind of neoliberal center right guys in, in Latin American politics. Um, Lasso has, has imposed a, a fuel cap, fuel price cap that is, I think, above uh, the level that most ordinary Ecuadorians or certainly indigenous Ecuadorians can pay. Uh, so they're upset about that. They would like that price cap to be lowered. They're angry about food prices, higher food prices, which, you know, some degree is a function of uh, what's happening uh, internationally. They are looking for um, reforms to lending practices that would be kind of ease the burden on small farmers, small and medium farmers. So, I mean, they've got a number of demands basically related to economic concerns that Lasso has been unwilling to countenance or to listen to. The demonstrations are longer lasting and larger than marches over fuel prices in October last year. The protests kind of kicked up to another level this week when uh, hundreds, if not thousands, I think probably at this point thousands uh, of protesters marched on Quito, the Ecuadorian capital, to you know, emphasize their opposition to Lasso's government. Lasso had declared over the weekend uh, states of emergency, or, or what I think the media has been calling states of exception, 
uh, in three Ecuadorian provinces around the capital because of the protests, which gives security forces uh, a freer hand to kind of go ham on the on the protesters. There have been some instances of that. There was, uh, you know, tear gas was uh, hauled out on Tuesday to block an effort to to block a major road through the capital. Um, there are reports of violence uh, overnight and into Wednesday in the city of Puyo. So things are starting to turn in a in a bad direction. Uh, something to to watch, I think, as as these protests get larger. The protesters have, I think, reached out to the Ecuadorian government to, to uh, you know, kind of press for negotiations. Uh, but they've asked as precondition for those negotiations for an end to these states of exception for Lasso to to pull the military and police back. Uh, kind of put the leash back on uh, to some extent, and Ecuadorian the Ecuadorian government has rejected uh, those preconditions. So it doesn't sound like negotiations are going anywhere. The protesters certainly don't seem to be going anywhere. They just held a major uh, march through Quito yesterday. Uh, so um, you know things are are somewhat at an impasse, but in a a precarious kind of uh, you know could turn ultra violent at any point uh, stage. We will keep you updated on what's going on there. But over to Israel, where friend of the pod, Naftali Bennett's uh, coalition has collapsed. Derek, what is the uh, yeah, story? Yeah, he could, he could, if he was looking for a new gig, he could replace Bessner, I guess, if he's not going to be here. Um, <laughs> he has the swagger. Naftali, give me a call, man. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, the Israeli coalition has collapsed. Uh, it collapsed on Monday. Um, in an orderly way, what didn't involve a no confidence vote or anything like that. Uh, Bennett, Naftali Bennett, the uh, prime minister and his foreign minister slash coalition partner, Yair Lapid, uh, agreed to dissolve the coalition uh, and go to new election, a new election probably in October, which will be, uh, I believe, uh, the fifth election Israelis have had to uh, go through <laughs> in like a little over three years. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as things just kind of, kind of whittle away at the establishment. Um, the reasons uh, for this are many. Uh, the coalition was bleeding members. It was down to 59 votes uh, in the Knesset. Uh, which, you know, is a 120-seat legislature, so they didn't even have a majority. They could have been vulnerable to a confidence vote had the opposition tried one, although the people who have left, kind of been slowly one by one leaving the coalition, have uh, said as they were leaving that they wouldn't support a, a, a no-confidence vote. So uh, they were somewhat protected, but the ability, the coalition's ability to pass legislation was uh, down to like slim to none. I mean, we saw that something we uh, Danny and I talked about a couple of weeks ago. I think the failure earlier this month of the coalition to uh, pass an extension of the special legal status of the West Bank settlements to maintain those under uh, Israeli law rather than military law, like the rest of the West Bank, that was really a sign. I think that that things were coming to a close in terms of the coalition's viability, uh, and that was engineered to some degree by. The opposition by Benjamin Netanyahu, the former prime minister who is currently opposition leader, uh, head of the Likud party, uh, despite, you know, although he is a big fan of the settlements and politically depends on settler parties uh, for viability, 
he was willing to vote against the extension and have uh, Likud vote against the extension in order to kind of throw Ben in an anchor as he was floundering and, and uh, you know, force this uh, this collapse to happen. Uh, so what's happening now is Bennett will uh, give way to Lapid, who will take over as prime minister on a kind of interim or caretaker basis until the next election. Uh, this puts Lapid in, in something of a position to, to run as an incumbent, to sort of position himself as a potential prime minister after the election. But the vote will, as the, as the last four elections, you know, the, the, that Israelis have had to uh, struggle with, I think, two in 2019 and two in 2020, will turn on whether, as, as the, the previous four did, this one will turn on whether Netanyahu can amass a, a majority uh, with Likud, plus it's kind of traditional far right right to far right coalition partners uh he's been unable to do that in these previous elections but the opposition until uh the most recent one hadn't been able to kind of cobble together its own coalition uh, so israel just kept going through these snap elections one after the other uh with nothing you know nothing constructive happening in the the most recent election bennett and lapid were able to finally put together this very unwieldy coalition. It's basically an anti-Netanyahu coalition. Uh, ideologically, there's not much else holding it together. And uh, survived, I think, I would say longer than than um, they had any right to expect. So, you know, the fact that they made it, I think, you know, well over, well over a year, I think. I don't know about well over, but uh, the fact that they made it this long is, is somewhat remarkable, uh, but they couldn't hold it together. And again, We'll see what happens in in October if Netanyahu is able to get over the hump and amass a 61 seat or more uh, or greater majority, uh, then he will return as prime minister. This is something that I suspect the Biden administration does not want to see happen. Uh, we talked about, I think last week, we talked about one of the reasons Biden uh, is going to the Middle East next month uh, and stopping in Israel uh, was to... Uh, kind of bolster Bennett, make, you know, who was uh, at that point kind of floundering politically, but to kind of strengthen him. Um, now it'll probably be to strengthen Lapid or Lapid and Bennett. Uh, at any rate, it's going to be to try to make these guys look like um, big power players internationally to try and burnish their image because Biden doesn't, uh, I think, want Netanyahu back in power. Uh, Netanyahu has been a thorn in the side of Democratic administrations, uh, especially the Obama administration. So all the more reason now, I think, to stop in Israel and kind of give them the Biden bump, which is probably non-existent, but I'm sure the Biden administration thinks that there is a Biden bump or that there's a bump from having a U.S. president kind of publicly meeting with the uh, with Israeli leaders. So they're hoping to to do that. Yeah. If this were like a, uh, for some reason that, you know, all this drama around this coalition is reminding me of like a pro wrestling match. And I feel like, you know, ben, <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu has like marched down to the ring as like the surprise uh, heel and hit Bennett with a chair. So uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> this is my sophisticated understanding of geopolitics. Uh, it's not bad. Mm, so. I mean, that gets you basically, I don't know. He's not, he, he's already the heel, but he kind of popped out of the crowd and like, Smashed yeah, his like surprise and, and return, ran, you like know? ran out. Yeah, like exactly. It was like a, uh, you know, somebody hit his music and he ran down with a sledgehammer or something. Yeah, exactly. Now on to the topic that I've been blowing up in the group chat because of all the insane optics um, coming from this trip is Mohammed bin Salman's trip to Turkey. Yes. So uh, MBS has been on a, a three stop 
tour of the Middle East uh, that wrapped up uh, in Turkey. He arrived on Wednesday. I'm not sure when he's heading back to uh, the comforts of Saudi Arabia. But um, it's it's an interesting tour. The way they designed it was very interesting. I thought he stopped first uh, in Egypt, which is a country that since 2013 has been basically wholly dependent on Saudi Arabia, their client, essentially. Um, and, and, you know, announced a few, you know, investment things and, and you know, some some agreements in principle to, um, you know, get some, send some more Saudi money to, to Egypt. Uh, he then went to Jordan, uh, where the relations with Saudi Arabia have gotten strained um, to some extent over uh, questions related to Israel and Palestine. Uh, the Saudis are uh, a little more open uh, to dealing with Israel. They're not open to to full normalization, although we can talk about that in a moment. Um, the Jordanians are are you know much more on the 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 side of we don't deal with um, you know I mean they have their own treaty with Israel, but they they've been much more sort of uh, we have to take care of the Palestinians. You know let's let's be mindful of the Palestinian cause, and that's created some strain in that relationship. Um, I think MBS would like to uh, be seen as the protector of the uh, holy sites in East Jerusalem, for example, the uh, Muslim holy sites in East Jerusalem, which is uh, something the Jordanian monarchy does now uh, and not a not a title that they're willing to give up. So there's been some strain in that relationship. There was some new promises again during his stop in Jordan of, of Saudi investment, which uh, is the, the the thing, the literal currency that smooths all this stuff over because the Saudis have a lot of money to spend and you go to places like Egypt and Jordan um, and they need it. They need the investment. Their economies are weak. Uh, so MBS brought some package of uh, kind of vague promises of new investment, which were meant to improve relations between those two countries. Then he arrived in Turkey where relations have been uh, in tatters, uh, basically, over the last several years. Uh, as basically, since the Arab Spring, when Turkey and Saudi Arabia kind of saw opportunities, uh, I think, to uh, establish some preeminence in the Arab world uh, with the Turks backing uh, Muslim Brotherhood parties around the region as they, they were sort of positioning themselves for elections, the Saudis opposing this and, and working to undermine those kinds of parties. So they haven't been getting along since 2011. And then, of course, there was the 2018 murder of Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, most likely ordered by Mohammed bin Salman. Khashoggi was, uh, by all accounts, uh, friends with the Turkish president uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. The insult of having the murder done in Istanbul was another factor here, and the Turks were very anxious to investigate this and, and kind of embarrass uh, MBS. Well, funny enough, the Turkish economy is now a wreck. Uh, inflation is skyrocketing. I think uh, last month it was like I saw some reference to like real inflation. The official figure is one thing, but like real inflation uh, up in the 60s to 70 percent. Uh, range. So, I mean, the Turkish economy is is reeling, uh, and the same principle is applied in Jordan, applies here. Mohammed bin Salman shows up with uh, promises to funnel a lot of Saudi money and Saudi investment uh, into the Turkish economy, and in return, uh, Erdogan pretends that the, the murder didn't happen, and they both pretend that they've been best friends for, for this entire time. And this is all basically to build up MBS's image as the leader of sort of the the uh, regional first among equals let's say and to position himself in that way uh, to, to sort of wash the stain of the Khashoggi murder off to the extent that he can and to position himself in the strongest possible 
light uh, ahead of Biden's trip. Biden's going to come offering maybe some kind of a security agreement. That's the rumor anyway. Uh, it's It remains to be seen how comprehensive that would be or how much it would bind the United States to, uh, you know, kind of uh, defending Saudi Arabia if push comes to shove. But Biden's going to be looking for a couple of things. One, some kind of an agreement to pump more oil, to bring down global oil prices. Uh, and also, increasingly, it seems like he's going to be looking for some movement on the part of Saudi Arabia toward normaliz- normalizing relations with Israel. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, by kind of uh, you know making this trip and uh, making this very high-profile trip where he's been treated as a you know grandee uh, everywhere he's went, puts himself in a position to maybe speak to Biden with a little, you know, speak to Biden with a little more kind of oomph uh, behind it and to strike a harder bargain or a better bargain for Saudi Arabia. And to close things out today, we're going to talk a bit about the tragic earthquake that just occurred in Afghanistan and some ways you can help out. So, Derek, what happened there? Uh, There was a magnitude six-ish. I mean, I've seen anything from 5.9 to 6.2 earthquake that struck uh, the epicenter was in eastern Afghanistan's Paktika province uh, on Wednesday, um, killing at this point over a thousand people. I don't think uh, authorities are even trying to estimate anymore because there's, th- that number is going to increase probably dramatically as recovery work continues. Um, hundreds of, of people injured, uh, untold property damage. Again, the recovery effort will, uh, will determine just how much. Uh, there's some reports of, of minor casualties and damage, um, well, comparatively minor. I don't want to diminish it too much uh, in Pakistan because the earthquake, the epicenter was close to the Pakistani border. Uh, but by far, the vast majority of the damage and the the, de- the casualties uh, were, uh, you know, were coming from Afghanistan. The reason that this matters is because Afghanistan is basically proscribed by the U.S. government. Its uh, uh, humanitarian relief has been uh, almost uh, cut off. There's still some efforts going on by U.S. sanctions. And, and you know, this is one of these things where uh, the United States insists that it doesn't place any, hasn't placed any restriction on humanitarian aid or humanitarian efforts. Uh, certainly it would, you know, the, the Biden administration, I think, would insist that it, it's not blocking emergency relief efforts like you would see in response to an earthquake. Uh, but in practice, and, and this is true, this has been true everywhere the United States has imposed uh, sanctions like the ones it has now in place uh, for Afghanistan, uh, we know that those sanctions have a chilling effect on anything uh, that involves economic activity, and that includes charitable uh, work or charitable relief efforts. Um, the Biden administration is sort of playing dumb. Uh, last I saw yesterday, they were saying, well, we're not aware of any requests by the Afghan government for assistance, but we'll certainly be willing to talk about it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the Taliban-led uh, government has made several international requests, actually appeals. Uh, several if officials in the Taliban or in the Taliban-led government uh, have made appeals for international aid that probably cannot be fulfilled uh, unless the United States, uh, you know, kind of gives clearance a, a, at a minimum. Uh, there are places, if people are inclined and able, there are places to go uh, to contribute uh, to relief efforts. Uh, globalgiving.org is is one that I, uh, I, I use for a lot of things when I want to uh, send some money to a charitable cause. Uh, Islamic Relief USA has a, a an earthquake emergency fund that they're uh, building the International Red Cross, Red Crescent, 
uh, works in Afghanistan, and I think Doctors Without Borders as well uh, is preparing uh, some kind of a, a, a response to the earthquake. So, um, you know, f- those are four places people could uh, could check out. I'm sure there are more, but um, those are the four that I've I've seen. And we'll uh, include links to those places in the show description. So. Derek, thank you as always for your expertise and updates, and we will see everyone next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.